Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Netflix, Nickelodeon and naughty parenting bloggers. Plus, a new radio station for podcasts and the politicians fight to be in the TV election debates. And who will be an excitable Edgar and win the historical media quiz? It's all to come in today's Media Podcast. And with me today, making her media podcast debut, it is the director of the biggest radio industry event you've never heard of, Anne Charles. The event, of course, Radio TechCon, bigger than ever. Absolutely. Tell but us what it is. Radio TechCon is the UK radio and audio industry's technical and engineering event. It's so happening. if the Radio Academy stuff isn't geeky enough for you, this is the, the real nuts and bolts engineering nerd stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it's for everybody, Ollie, because if you want to know what the future of radio and audio is, you need to talk to the engineers because we're thinking about it five years, seven years, ten years ahead of everybody else. So, yeah, it's happening on the 25th of November at IET London Savoy Place. Give us Tickets. some highlights. Oh, this year. Well, if for, with your podcasting hat on, we've got yes. the technology behind Brexit Cast. So Dino, producer Dino from Brexit Cast and Election Cast and Robin Pembroke from the BBC will be there to explain the behind the scenes of how that all happens. I am intrigued because I have a question. I want to know when Laura Koonsberg was in a car last week how the quality of the sound was that good when she appeared to be speaking into iPhone headphones. And that's exactly the kind of thing they'll be covering in their talks. So, I mean, you know. TV boom mic is my guess, but well, I'd be curious to know. Yeah, exactly. So this is why it's exactly the kind of conference you should be at. Um, we've got, well, I can go on for ages about all the well, things we've got on Well, give us one more. We have got a debate on the future of radio. So there's lots of talk about whether we should be looking at DAB+, IP, 5G. Lots of nonsense gets talked about 5G. Um, obviously, the future is kind of multi-platform and a mixture, but we've got a, 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 a thought experiment debate going on where we get three experts to pretend that the government has finally made a decision and we're only allowed to broadcast <laughs> in one of those formats and then we'll look at the pros and cons. So Exciting. Bring some jeopardy to this stuff. I know. Uh, and where do you get your tickets? Radiotechcon.com. There we go. Excellent. Also joining me, veteran media pod commentator this one, podcaster, deputy editor of Pilot TV magazine, uh, and the reason my wife still buys heat, it's Boyd Hilton. <laughs> Thank God for your wife. <laughs> that Dino from Brexitcast is on screen more often than Laura Koonsberg, isn't he? I mean, he's constantly there. He's smouldering, the isn't he, in the background? Smouldering yeah. is the word, yeah. yes. Uh, do you think they designed that set and so that he could smoulder? They must the have done. Yeah. I think that was some of the design, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's it paid off, though. Is there like a sort of Dino Twitter appreciation account going on? I don't know. Oh, there must be. If there isn't, then after people listen to this, they'll, they'll create Let's it. Let's start one. I mean, yeah, what's, yeah. what's Tumblr for? Yeah. <laughs> 
and you know, as a former producer, anything that raises the status of a producer is always a good thing, right? Fair enough, yeah. Uh, now, Boyd, I understand mm. you are fresh from attending the Tarantino career retrospective at BAFTA. True, yes. It was one of the, um, I was going to say one of the great days of my life. I mean, that's an exaggeration. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I am prone to hyperbole, uh, but it was really great because these things. I've hosted these things before. Yes, um, I hosted one with David Fincher once. Um, still available on the BAFTA website. And, and who did they get to do Quentin Tarantino? Francine Stock. Okay, Francine Stock. I think is the is pretty much the presenter of this this strand now. Life in Pictures is his BAFTA. They do special things a few times a year with absolute. Um, TV and film legends. And are these they, the ones that are on Sky Arts, aren't they? Yeah, they're on Sky Arts, right? Are they good actually? They're okay. really. I good. will be watching. Yeah, them. I think they're really good because they're quite. They're very. It's very like conversational and natural. That generally, that was what I tried to do. And Francis Stock's really good at that as well. And but I just thought Quent, he is brilliant um, at talking about his work. He's so. Um, eloquent in a in an odd way he has a very odd way of talking as i'm sure anyone who's ever seen him interview will know but there's something extremely honest and um incisive about where he talks about his own work it's fascinating it was so interesting i always feel like he because well, he's obviously a huge film nerd isn't he but he talks yeah. about his own work as if it's someone else's he does a bit yeah i mean you know you could accuse him of being arrogant i would say he's you know he's he's, he's definitely um aware of how good his stuff can be and how talented he is and he's unashamedly kind of proud of what he does and of what he's and the films he's I mean, it's not the forum for awkward questions, I guess, because you're sort no. of blowing smoke up their ass. But yeah. did she ask? I mean, because with him, there is the stuff about violence, the use of the N-word, misogyny. Did any of that come up? No, it didn't. But he did make some points, like, for example, um, that Django Unchained, for example, which is one of the films that some, I think, misguided people criticised who used the N-word when, of course, everyone would have used the N-word in the period it was set, is a, was a massive global phenomenon for black audiences. He did talk about this, which I've read about before. And so he took kind of, I think that was his implicit, you know, kind of explanation mm. of, of of why he felt he could tell that story and use that language in that film. The violence, I, think, I don't think anyone was bothered, really. I think everyone's like, well, actually, the, the scenes of violence in some of your films are extraordinarily beautiful and we're not meant to go out and start cutting heads off people in Japanese restaurants. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's talk telly, if we can still call it that, with news that Nickelodeon have signed with Netflix to produce original content for them over the next few years. Um, and how much do you think this deal was prompted by the launch of Disney Plus this week in the US. I'm Netflix thinking we need a kids TV slate as well. I suppose that's going to be part of it. Um, Netflix have been producing some original content, haven't they? But I don't know if they've really gone very much into the children's space. So I suppose having a whole load of stuff that has already been made for you is good. Although lots of other people seem to be taking their stuff off Netflix. So I yeah, don't know how long it will last. So that's the, it kind of seems to be a flag that Nickelodeon aren't going to be launching their own kids network, whereas Disney clearly are. Yes, although um, I mean, you never know because a lot of the a lot of the content providers and platforms and TV production companies and TV channels that still have content on Netflix still have also their own streaming service. It's very complex this world mm. of streaming television um, and rights issues and you know so i mean you know with the launch of britbox this week um there's you know there's talk of you know how much original content does that need to have that has very little does that matter because it's all about this incredible library apple tv plus launched a couple of weeks ago which does no library but has all original content and will be adding more and more every week so it's just complicated and i think you know in 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 maybe in 10 years time everyone will have their own streaming services and maybe they'll all kind of 
be easy to find in one place and it won't be so confusing as it is now. Yeah, it is not. confusing, isn't it, And Like, I, I mean, I still haven't watched the Apple one yet, despite the fact I recently bought an iPhone, so I could get it for free, I understand, because I couldn't quite work out how to. And I'm not going to invest any time trying it to find out how to. I'm just going to wait till it lands on my telly at some point. Exactly. And this is the kind of cyclical nature and stuff. And what we've seen in the radio industry as well, that the radio industry understood quite early on, you need one place. Because in the <laughs> yeah. past, we had a radio that you listened to radio on, and we had a telly that you watched telly on. And why should we force our audience to go through 17 different menus to try and find the programme that they're looking for? So hmm. I guess there's going to be a natural cycle of people joining together and then going, no, we want to play in our own playgrounds. And then it will be interesting to see where that levels out. And it, you mentioned BritBox, Boyd, yes. and we should, we should say you are a paid spokesperson I for, for that yes. service. You'll see some very nice tweets from me coming up soon about Ka-ching. BritBox. Okay, so so before <laughs> Anne and I question what's yep. the point of it all, yep. tell us what the point of it all is. I think the point of it is to have ITV, it says ITV and BBC combined, and they've also got signed up Channel 4 to it now as well. So UK TV, classic UK TV, I mean, you know, a lot of it quite recent as well, and going back years and years, kind of any, if you just think of any kind of TV show, drama, comedy, whatever, you think, oh, I want to watch that now of, a, of, of any vintage, it's quite likely that it might be on BritBox right now. And that's not to say it's not also going to be on iPlayer or, you know, other, or you could maybe buy it on DVD or whatever, but or iTunes, but for for the amount of money it costs to to to, to subscribe to BritBox, you have got hundreds and hundreds already. Yeah, so it's five ninety nine a month. Yeah, of but classic. then it's, a lot of it really is on gold already, isn't it? I mean, of course, the... but a lot, but a lot isn't. You know, it's like you know, you can all, you can you can say that you know, there's still things on Netflix, UK shows Netflix that are also still on iPlay. It's 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 a weird place, but I think. As in, you know, the streaming, the streaming world, um, stuff. You know, there's very little. You know, they bid hundreds of millions of dollars for things like Friends and Seinfeld. Those are big stories, but actually, a lot of other content is around in different places. But if you just, you know, if you go on, on BrickBox, you will see hundreds of classic shows. That's the bottom line. What do you think success looks like for them? Because they're not going to be Netflix, are they? No, it's not. I don't think. I think it's a long. It's a long term plan. I think it's. You know. I think. I think they just. I think BBC and ITV and now Channel Four have just gone. Well, we've got our own stuff. We've got our own content that we've paid for for years and years and years. That a lot of it we can't put it all out at one go in our in our traditional channels. You know, like Gold, etc., and Dave, etc. So why not have a place, a streaming place to go where we ha- where we can put all of our library there at any given time and it's a one-stop shop if you want to check to watch classic television fair enough i mean on boxing day you know all of doctor who is going to be available from you know the 60s to now and that's i think for doctor who fans even though you could you can of course you know half of them have got it on dvd mm. but still having it all there in one place that is for me that kind of sums up the appeal of it exclusivity though i mean new stuff there's two new episodes of midsummer murders it's hard to say that you know, in the metropolitan liberal media elite without sounding like I'm being sniffy, but I'm not. Big thing, Midsummer Murders, but still, two episodes. And they've got some Doctor Who that's never been released before, but that's basically it at the moment. That doesn't feel like enough, does it? And to compete with the big boys. No, I'm trying... I think it feels like BritBox will be something that starts to make sense once it's there and exists and we can use it. Um, I think the Midsummer Murders aren't even exclusive, are they? They're just kind of... You can get them first. No, two, two brand are new they? episodes, I understand. Oh, well, exclusive, oh, okay. yeah, in, initially, yeah, before yeah. they arrive on... Oh, it's, oh and then yeah, they're going on to And there's an Australian drama. There's an Australian drama they've acquired... On BritBox. Um, on BritBox. And they'll acquire more stuff. But I think the main proposition is, is, is the library. That's the key to it, I think. So will there be much... Um, Will each company handle this differently? Will are they allowed to share data? So can ITV 
go, oh, you've been enjoying this on ITV Hub and therefore we can kind of push your data backwards and forwards if you've got a subscription to both services or are they being run entirely separately? I th- well, I don't know for sure. I'm, I'm assuming they're run entirely separately, yeah. I mean, I don't think, I think by GDPR, I don't think you'd be allowed, would you, if you subscribe to one service that automatically, just because it's run co- jointly by a, a company. Definitely that they can couldn't then... do it automatically. No. But I kind of, I wonder how this is working as a, yeah, how separate everything's going to be and whether they're allowed to have strategy with these assets that they own. Yeah. Well, they want to keep you on Hub watching Broadchurch, even though it's two years old, because they've got ads on it. Yeah, and the different um, options that are available in different countries, because I think a lot of BritBox would seem to have an appeal to people who are living abroad for a while, yeah. or the American audience who loves British oh, well, It does stuff. have an audience, doesn't it, to be fair, in the US yeah. already. And will yeah. that mean that a lot of content, because they're putting content from Netflix, will that mean that there's less of a brand awareness internationally about British content because it's suddenly in this niche little corner over here? Or will the strategies just be very different in each country that BritBox exists in? Because it's in three countries at the moment, is it? And you're not here to ask questions. <laughs> That's my job. <laughs> These are the things that I worry about. <laughs> I'm going to ask you a question, which is about Netflix making the crown free. Mm-hmm. I saw that headline. I was apoplectic with rage because I'd keep my subscription partly so I can watch the crown. Yeah. Um, you were but, that angry. <laughs> well, I did wonder if people would be like, excuse me, I paid for this. Yeah, but it's only the first it's episode. one yeah. episode. Yeah. That makes complete sense. It does, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, why would you not? Because you're trying to attract an audience who possibly are only signing up for things like the crown because that's what they've heard about. And if it's got a good cliffhanger, then maybe they'll sign up for the rest and think, oh, I'll binge it all in a month and then not. Although, I, again, with these services, I suppose they have a lot of income from that monthly revenue, but it's interesting that it's it doesn't seem that easy for people to just buy a series or to sign up for one series, which I'd have thought would have been on Netflix. potential market. Or just for, for any of these services, it's sort of it's all or nothing, isn't it? Weirdly, oh. they still want you to get the DVD, don't they, for that stuff? But who's the watching Netflix DVDs? Well, well, I guess the older, it's sort of 50-plus audience yeah. who might be lured into Netflix for the first time by The Crown. That's yeah. who, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think the whole... the whole. I mean, I think having the first episode of The Crown available for free uh, is, as a thing is, is an interesting way of enticing people because it just is... It just makes it is really addictive, the crown. Mm. And I've watched most of this new series. Is it and as I'll tell good you, as we want it to be? It is. And and frankly, after watching the first episode, I, I literally watched the next five in about, you know, and stayed up till three in the morning. I did that. So why not? I mean, why not? If you've got an incredibly addictive mainstream drama proposition that's probably the one show in the whole Netflix library, the whole Netflix world of content that will appeal to the one audience you probably haven't got necessarily, which mm. is the older The iPlayer audience, basically. The iPlayer audience, the Radio Times audience, yeah. you know, it's on the cover of the Radio Times this week, no no coincidence. So why not try and get them on board? And it will it will work. And you know, it, it's completely, it, it's a kind of no-brainer. The bigger issue, you know, there was the article in the Financial Times about can all of these services sustain their stuff? You know, Netflix is pumping even more billions and billions of dollars into content and, and you know, Apple, Disney, all of the Disney had issues with their launch last night as we're speaking today. It's an incredibly built I mean, it's brilliant for me. Because if you write about TV, mm. this is like the this is gold upon gold because there's more and more to write about every single week. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, even even film these days oh. is on demand, basically, isn't it? Like a lot of the big releases are being funded by. Oh, by that's the true. Yeah, but, yeah, completely. But that you know, people they argue about that. You know, some people have. You know, you've got your Spielberg arguing with your Scorsese, not literally, but you know, Spielberg finds I think the whole idea of of, of films going to Netflix after a month in cinema is annoying. Scorsese has embraced it for the Irishman, but the TV world is it's in a state of utter kind of joyous, over the top kind of celebration of the of the possibilities of spending billions and billions of dollars on 
quality content, on scripted yeah, content. It's well, incredible. And briefly on this, before we move on, this idea of there being an SVOD bubble. Mm-hmm. That, you know, there's loads of investment, but that means there's going to be a couple of winners and everyone else will have wasted potentially billions of dollars. Do you think that is keeping executives up at night? I guess it depends how quickly the individual executive is planning to move on. Because right now, if you're in the middle of the wave and people are throwing cash at you to make programmes that you've always wanted to make, that's great. I don't know how it is for smaller producers. Um, I'm not an economic expert, but I can, ima- I can imagine though? a crash. Yeah. Yeah, well, because also how many hours in the day has everyone got to sign up to every single service? So you're going to, it's good that there's some investment going on into unique productions, but the, isn't the production budget for a couple of the Netflix series more than the entire budget for BBC Two or something like You know, it's kind of, it's at a level that we're just not used to. And I can't see that that's going to be able to last. You just wonder if, if, there, if it is a bubble and it pops then you're going to see an almighty crash of a big name. I mean, arguably, you've already seen Rupert Murdoch fold, basically, haven't you, by selling to Disney. Could you see Warner disappear because they sunk all their money into an on-demand streaming thing? Mm, I don't think so. I read I read the Financial Times article about it, and I wasn't convinced that... It was kind of like hedging expenses. It was like, there might, it might be a bubble. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a bubble in terms of, right now, everyone feels they have to do it. But the companies like Warner, Disney, Apple, I mean, you know, this is a splash in the ocean for Apple. They don't give a shit. You know, they, well, we might as well make spend billions of pounds of content because we're the richest people in the world and we can afford to do it. It doesn't matter. So uh, kind of a li- that goes a little bit as well for Warners and, and Disney. You know, Disney is not going to collapse if Disney Plus doesn't work. And I think already it kind of is working. So I think it's fine. I'm not... Uh, why worry about a world which is giving us more brilliant TV content than ever before right now? For me, like, to start... I mean, you know, if, if really hugely rich corporations end up having made a mistake about this, maybe, who, who cares? I mean, right now, it's incredible, honestly. And I think people who kind of moan about it, I'm like, oh, my. it's like moaning about having the best TV we've ever had in the world, which is every week there's a new thing that's kind of one of the best things we've ever had in the world. Okay, I'm not it, exaggerating. If it does all crash, at least in 10 years, they can launch their uh, Reminiscence Archive kind of uh, SVOD service where you yeah. can look back at, oh, do you remember The Crown? Oh, Netflix yeah, there gold. it is, because they've got the assets already. <laughs> yeah, Netflix Gold. Okay, we'll be back with some more media news after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
Spiritland Studios are run by Spiritland Productions, providers of professional audio solutions to TV, radio and online. As well as their broadcast standard studio facilities, Spiritland Productions also has a world-class OB vehicle for audio and video projects of any scale. Whether it's podcasting, outside broadcasting or live concert recording, produce your next show with Spiritland Productions. Go to spiritlandproductions.com now. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. My guests Anne and Boyd are still with me. Let's talk about social media now. And Instagram have been accused of unfairly silencing critics of a mummy blogger who used a fake profile to criticise rivals. And if that all sounded like a bit of a word salad, Anne, I understand you've been following this story. I'm a bit confused by it, to be honest. Okay. Can, you, can you talk us through slowly? I hope you know, so. As if for someone elderly who's never been on the internet, what happened here? Okay, there's a few names in here. It's a bit like when you're uh, in a play and you've got to learn everybody's real name and everybody's um, character name. So there is a, a, an Instagrammer, a blogger called Clemmie Hooper, mm-hmm. who is, and her name on Instagram is at Mother of Daughters. Mm-hmm. And she blogs about kind of family lifestyle, redecorating the kitchen, all that kind of stuff. She's Hence also the mummy blogger. Yeah, she's also a midwife, which okay. is a factor in this story so she was doing all of this kind of influencing away that people do and um, because this can be quite a vicious world and of course quite a lot of your income gets tied up to what people think about you um, she there's another site called Tattle Life and Tattle Life seems to be the kind of place where they say they're holding these influences to account but really a lot of it is not very nice um, holding to account. It's lots of bullying and gossiping and tearing people down. So Boyd, like digital spy for, <laughs> yeah. for influencers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so as far as I understand this, she became aware that people were talking um, badly about her on this site. So signed up to the site under a pseudonym, which was Alice in Wonderlust. Okay. To post things kind of going, oh no, Clemmie's fine. She's not that bad, really. Which, but slagging off her own husband. Yeah, but then this kind of, of morphed cover. over eight months. This morphed wow. into from defending herself and her family, and her husband's also a, 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 on Instagram at father of daughters. Uh, it turned into kind of bullying and intimidating behaviour, and yeah, including slagging off her own husband. And this was the element that first made the newspapers, or you know, the kind of internet gossip world. Mm. Um, but what was missed in the first go-round of telling the story, because, of course, everyone was like, oh, she's slagging off her husband. That's awkward. That's kind of... mm. What was kind of missed in the first go-round of the story, apart from the Daily Mail, which was surprising, because Candice Braithwaite, who's another uh, Instagrammer um, and runs uh, Make Motherhood Diverse, amongst other handles, um, she's a, uh, a mummy influencer who happens to be black, and some of the comments that Clemmie was writing were racist. And has she defended that at all? Has she tried to say, well, I was playing a character, you know, pretending to be someone else, or has she not attempted to defend? No. So this all came to light because various uh, people in this tattle life started to work out that it was the same person, and then Clemmie phoned some people and apologised, and then she posted an apology to her Instagram stories, which conveniently disappeared. Yeah, she got busted, I understand, hours. because both she and her pseudonym were on holiday in St. Lucia at the and same time. Like, that's weird. <laughs> um, but the thing, that's, the thing that's happened, and I... Uh, I've seen this happen again and again to black women on Instagram and Facebook who mention the word racism, Mm. is that a whole load of white people pile in and hit the report for racism button. So the person who's calling out racism is reported en masse for being racist, which is 
not a thing that's possible. Um, so, and then whatever's going on with the algorithms behind the scenes means that the person who's calling out the racism gets their account blocked or taken down or suspended. And this is what happened in this case. Oh, oh sorry. So it wasn't Candice that got called. No, it was, <laughs> it was another. Okafor. So Candice was the victim of the racism and then Kalechi called it out and Kalechi's account was the one that got um it has now been restored, but for a long time it was taken down. And of course, again, this means potential financial in- impact as well as just the distress of you're calling something out and you've suddenly got a load of people who are trolling you. And that, winding this all around again, <laughs> comes back into Facebook and Instagram. Having This is a constant thing that people are talking about at Facebook and Instagram of whether they are as an organisation institutionally racist because this thing happens to black bloggers who are talking about racism all the time. Which is an absolutely legitimate point worth talking about. However, in this case, this whole thing has happened because Clemmie Watson-Name decided to set up a pseudonym to troll herself. Well, she was defending herself and Defend then that herself, moved into husband. joining into... Uh, the point is, should it be people? someone's job at Instagram to police that? So, no, because th- that didn't happen on Instagram. Exactly. But... <laughs> The thing that the thing that has happened on Instagram is this mass reporting kicking yeah. off flags that are false flags that happens again and again and again. And also this but week, isn't there has that been quite a... a hard thing to pull it? Like you've just taken five minutes to summarise the story very elegantly. But you know, if if I was working in content moderation, and I had millions of things landing on my desk. Is it fair to assume that someone at Instagram would be able to be on top of all of this? I think the thing that Instagram and Facebook need to look at is how frequently there is a pattern of malicious and false reporting of people and how that's being used to kick off I mean no one knows how their algorithms work right but how that's being used to kick off a flag so that the person who's criticising you gets taken down the person who is calling out racism or posting pictures of them breastfeeding or whatever the things are that it's not like it's a one-off occurrence this happens all the time and there has also been a medium post this week where um, some people who work inside, there's 12 people who work inside Facebook have called out the racism that they experience within the company, mm. reflects comments that have happened before. Obviously, racism is structured in society, so it may or may not be that Instagram and Facebook are acting particularly different from any other company. But there is definitely a perception amongst some of these bloggers that the way it's set up is meaning that it's it's victimising people who aren't the people who are causing the problem. Does that make sense? It made perfect sense. I, I'm, I have to turn to Boyd to ask for his opinion, but I don't even know where to begin. I mean, where, where, begin. Do, you, where do you well, come from listening to that? It strikes me, I read about this, the story in the, the, I mean, I didn't even know about, I don't even know about, I'm so far away from the world of mum blogging and all that, and then the, and then the, then the site devoted to malicious <laughs> gossip and all that. But it just strikes me that social media is driving people Insane. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm try- I was trying to find the, 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 the word, a non-offensive word of that. But to the extent that people are obsessed mm. with these people, with, you know, Instagram stars and, you know, people are spending a vast amount of their time. I mean, it, that the unhealthiness of that is what strikes me as the, as the big picture thing. And that people are driven to... It's so competitive... Once you get a lot, once you get over ten thousand followers, you know it strikes me on Instagram particularly. I mean, it's, I think Twitter is a whole different thing, but on Instagram, it seems such a th- thing that you, you then start making money out of it mm-hmm. quite quickly, seemingly. And then you know all the YouTube personalities on top of that. That whole world seems so dementedly competitive that it really scares me. And and it is very. And the other thing that strikes me similarly, I feel this. I felt this about the YouTube 
YouTubers, you know, the kind of young ones, that feels incredibly white to me as well, you know, that world. There's very, seems to be very few non-white, huge, I mean, you know, this KSI who did that boxing thing recently. But you look at, you know, you look at all these, the kind of um, events they have, and it's like 20 beautiful white people, you know, all gathering for their fans, for their young fans in a convention center somewhere and talking about themselves. It's, the whole thing is odd. It just, yeah, that's my ineloquent... Uh, no, I think that's thought-provoking. I mean, I think, in a way, it's celebrity and microcosm, isn't it? And so you've got, like, you know, the, all the issues that Boyd was just talking about there in reaction to what you were saying, that those are the sort of things that affect celebrities that are in the tabloids, doesn't it? And and it's the, the point is there's big money in it. So in the same way... People will point out hypocrisies, they will troll you, they will look for weaknesses and vulnerabilities, you know, with your pu- public persona, because they know that you're making money out of your life. But I think that that also comes to, we're now in a world, we haven't had years and years of experience of knowing how to deal with this stuff as individuals or as people who are putting that content out there. In the past, if you had an audience of 10,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, you'd have been a TV or a radio presenter or a columnist, and there would have been some kind of infrastructure and organisation around you mm. to help defend against whatever was going on and kind of to go, oh, I think I think Ollie's needs a cup of tea now and is having a bit of a moment and perhaps we need to pop him in a dark room for a while and let him have a think about what he's done or whatever. I'm sure that never happens. But, you know, there's a, whereas now you've just got these people who are individually trying to work out how to do this stuff and how to deal with it. And we don't know how to deal with it, really. I also think it's different to traditional celebrity because I think the 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 fact that, that this is a world where people are mining their own normal lives, mm-hmm. so to speak. I mean, actually, of course, they're glamorising them intrinsically, usually, often, anyway, on Instagram. But it is about normal people rising to this level of huge fame. And I think the petty jealousy that that, inculcates in people is extraordinary and you, that's why all of these different things exist why that's why this whole mess i think happens because people are bitterly jealous of why is that seemingly untalented person normal person suddenly got hundreds of thousands of followers and a huge amount making a huge amount of money and has a huge amount of influence and i who am an other mother of children and is equally intelligent not doing that and i think that's and i think whereas i think you know with film stars and you know I think it's different. I think people understand that level of fame and it's there and they don't, they don't mm. it doesn't particularly bother them. This is different, I think. And I think this is, it is really getting unhealthy and slightly depressing. And where the two worlds merge, arguably, is in these kind of TV platforms that the social media companies are trying to launch at the moment. Uh, IGTV is the Instagram one. And there was a story reported in Bloomberg US this week that Instagram is willing to pick up the tab for video production costs for some of the Instagrammers who are making... It's vertical video, isn't it, on the phone? So it's, it, it comes at an extra cost. If you're already making stuff for YouTube, you have to reformat it. Was that a surprise to either of you that Instagram are actually funding some of the content there? Not really. I mean, why not? Because, you know, they need to get as many eyes on their content as possible. Why not? get involved and, you know, if people are really popular and they can help them and they can fund that. Yeah, that makes sense. And it also makes sense to me that they're not, they don't want them to be political because they must be looking at the Facebook, the, the endless controversies about what people post on Facebook and how, you know, people are furious about the, level, the political content they allow on that people lie <laughs> and not sticking to facts. One way out of that, the obvious way out of that is just go, well, no politics at all for you people. Yeah, so there was one element of the story that was reported this weekend is that IGTV are saying, don't talk politics if we give you money. And of course, you know, their parent company is Facebook. Are they just hedging their bets? 
I think it's probably just that they want, they're an entertainment platform and they're choosing to support people who are making entertaining, non-controversial stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't mean they've banned people from making political videos. It's just they're saying, if you're good enough and you've got a big audience, we'll fund some production costs in the, I suppose it's like a commissioner, isn't it? They're going, well, we're going to commission this genre. We're not, we, we don't want to pay and deal with the fallout from anything that someone says that's political. It's kind of a shame though, in a way, isn't it? Because, you know, if someone has an appropriate level of influence that Instagram would want their videos to exist, those are the kind of people it would be quite interesting to hear from as a political voice. Yeah, but imagine, you know, after 10 seconds of, you know, some some doofus spouting off, you know, Breitbart-style right-wing quasi-fascist nonsense, then they're in trouble. So, Is IGTV fair enough. the first place people go for political commentary? <laughs> yeah, no, I, right. <laughs> it's not, yeah. Uh, talk of politics, uh, let's talk about another dispute, which is this time between the Lib Dems, the SNP and the broadcasters who have left the parties out of their pre-election debates. Boyd, you always seem to be here when there's general yeah, election it's on. Weird, it? It's yeah. the third one now. Yeah. Um, this general election is taking place four days after my birthday, so I'm quite excited about it. I think that's why they planned it that yeah, of way. Course, yeah. I know, like, there's a natural yeah. high. Well, at one point it was going to be on my birthday. Do you remember what the Labour and SNP wanted it on the 9th, which right. is my birthday. Yeah. It's on the 12th. They'd want to avoid Close enough. There. Yeah. Too much competition. It's a big issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Yes. Uh, I mean, you can't blame ITV in the sense of big box office, Corbyn versus Johnson, of course, is what everyone wants to see. But also, it's very difficult not to feel some sympathy, particularly for the Lib Dems, who are genuinely national parties. One thing with the SNP, they're only in Scotland, but the Lib Dems are a national party. You can see why they want to sue ITV, can't you? I I was surprised, I have to say, I was surprised when it was announced that Joe... Joe Swinson was not going to be in that debate, and we'll say neither of the of the um, BBC ITV debates. Are she? They're both they're both them. Um, the BBC's got one the week before, the Friday before um, the election, which is also it's called the Prime Ministerial Debate. I noticed, I saw that, yeah. that through today in my listings. And they're not named in the legal action. I don't know no. why. But they're right, no, they're not. Maybe just haven't got around to it yet. Maybe yeah. it wasn't confirmed until you know the last couple of days or so that BBC was doing this. But it seems odd to me. I mean, because I mean, I guess. You know, it's extremely unlikely that the Liberal Democrats are going to are going to win, are, are going to have the next prime minister. But you know, it's 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 possible. It's conceivable. It's just about conceivable, isn't it? So, and I it's feel also like likely that they're going to have an influence, and they'll definitely have an influence. I was going to go and say, yeah, they, they they could have the it could be the deciding factor in 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 what happens. Presuming of a hung parliament is quite likely scenario right now. So. It strikes me as being odd, and also, would either would really would would either of the two other leaders, you know, really have complained? Oh, if, I think so. Really, I would think they? this has come from them. Well, don't you, they, but what, even if they had have complained, would they really had the power to stop to say no? We're not taking part. If she's taking part, that uh, that seems I mean, unlikely. I find I it naive. extraordinary as well. That I mean, you might remember Ed Miliband actually proposed when he was uh, Labour leader and in the running for Prime Minister that there should be a law that compelled yeah. the leaders of the main parties to take part in TV election debates, and he was widely maligned at the time. <laughs> as along with most of the things he said that then came to be. <laughs> he was widely maligned for even suggesting this ridiculous thing. But actually, since then, Cameron and May have ducked out of TV debates. And I think the fear would be, yeah, if Joe Swinson was there being Nick Clegg, would that be beneficial to Boris? But aren't ITV's having a seven-way debate? Are both channels having... Yeah, kind of, they're having, having a, yeah. We're having two of you and we're having everyone together thing. This, I suppose, comes down in this election to we're in that, difficult time where up until now we've had a broadly two-party system and now we're kind of going well have we got a multi-party system and the Brexit thing has meant that the split in the country is not along party lines I guess most organizations are going off their 
electoral guidelines and the balance decisions that are made beforehand so that you're not in the middle of it trying to work mm. out what your balance should be. And that's probably the question is where are those guidelines right for the time that we're in and will we need to review them the, the proportions that we do stuff in afterwards because if we've already got a seven-way debate I mean the problem is it's not great telly is it it isn't and we've talked about this before Boyd so yeah. let's do this briefly but it's true isn't it apart from the I agree with Nick thing you know the first time we ever saw that yeah. it was exciting yeah it's hard to think of a moment from the last seven years of TV election debates that's truly been classic I remember yeah I vaguely remember Jeremy Paxman hosting one and there was some incredible moment of of rudeness at the end that uh, even that is is vague in my mind. Yeah but that was one on one wasn't that it? That was one oh you're yeah. right yeah that was one on one I remember all the women yeah. hugging at the end of yeah. one and um, Yeah. I mean the Tory you know. leadership debates were ex- quite extraordinary weren't they like for how much they were shouting at each other you know mm. all these kind of high Tory men shouting shouting over each other in that way. There was one that just literally could, could not hear what the hell was going on. That was unbelievable. I think, and that, but as, as, as to your point, it, that was evidence that if you have a, quite a few people going at it, I mean, I watched the Democratic, you know, uh, uh, presidential debates where you've got what, I don't know, they split them into two groups of 10, don't they? Mm. And they are crazy and, you know, but in a quite entertaining way. But I think just having the three would have made sense to me, the three main party leaders. I still think that... that but is, I suppose that then the SNP is going to go, but hang on, you've got... What, on what basis did you have that three rather than this three? Well, and because then another they're one. not a national... You can't... Well, I suppose some of our oh. Scottish listeners would say that they are, but, you know... Um, we have a separate debate there, <laughs> yeah, yeah. including... Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just remembered the awkward moment from the Jeremy oh, Paxman thing. It was Ed Miliband again yeah. saying, am I tough in us? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then afterwards, Paxman that's said, right. are you all right? <laughs> Do you remember? Yes. That's what he said. And he was Brilliant. on mic. And Absolutely. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. fine. Thanks. Yeah. Weird question. Uh, <laughs> let's just talk about the suggestion that former Trump advisor and Breitbart boss sloppy Steve Bannon might be putting in a bid for the Telegraph. Is that conceivable? I mean, I understand why he might want it. Why would you sell it to him? Like, if you believed in the values of what the Telegraph used to be when you bought it, why you would you sell it to him? Have you read the Telegraph recently? I know it's I mean, it, drifted. It's, it's, it's become... It's not Breitbart. It's No, but even more embarrassingly, in a way, it's the Daily Boris. It's become a Boris fanzine. It's extraordinary. To the point where... I think the I think that if you if you, or there's a lot of really talented journalists at the Telegraph, you know, I happen to think Robbie Collin, their film critic, is, is one of the best film critics out there, for example. But the news coverage is a joke, and you've got you know day in day out embarrassing fact-free Boris headlines. So why is it any more embarrassing to have to have Steve Bannon take over and to drive whatever his right-wing agenda is? I, I just quote, I read the story in, pub, in Private Eye this week about, about the whole Telegraph sale thing. And this quote struck me as being really interesting. They said, who would want to buy this tottering business, they say? Although the usual names have been trotted out, Jeff Bezos, Lord Ashcroft, Lord Rothermere, the eye understands there have been no concrete offers. Is that right? Yes, that's what the eye well, says. Is that right? Is that's, that the, according is that, to them, is that the gossip in private eye? It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. Because I think it has been, it's being driven into a kind of corner of Boris' obsession right now, which is embarrassing. And so for, maybe someone like Steve Bannon does stand a chance because no one else is that bothered with it right well, there now. There is actually a, an argument, if you just take away your personal sure. feelings about Steve Bannon. Sure. There's an argument, isn't there, Anne, that actually, arguably... The male is drifting more centrist under Geordie Grieg, and so there is actually a space for a more populist right wing. It seems a weird thing to say in our media landscape, but there might actually be space for a Trump style paper. But would the existing readership that is left be, how would they feel about that? Because it, it might be that Steve Bannon is slightly beyond, beyond their limits. 
Yeah. yeah. Not Arsenal. That's the weird thing. I mean, I see the gap in the market. I just don't see how that could be the Telegraph. I've watched documentaries about Steve Bannon and I, and I find him, he's obviously, I find him a horrendous figure, but I think he's smart enough not to necessarily, if he bought it, you know, I don't think that'd mean he'd necessarily turn it into a Bannon daily reflecting his politics on a daily basis. I think he's smart enough to probably make sure he doesn't lose the traditional Telegraph reader. And by the way, I think considering how gung-ho they are for Boris, and that's, and I think, you know, and this whole current cabinet, in my opinion, is, a, is one of the most right-wing cabinets in, ever. I don't think it's that much of a stretch to what probably Steve Bannon would do with it. That's my feeling. The, the hilarious much... thing about the quote that Bannon gave, I yeah. think, is he, he said, the reason that it's been hard to get a sort of, you know, Fox-style title off the ground in the UK is the class system. It's all the Oxford-Cambridge stuff. I thought, well, why would you buy the Telegraph there? I mean, well, like, yeah. you were going to name a media title that was more sort of embroiled in all of that heritage. It's that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, but, you know, maybe he thinks he can challenge it because he's he's quite arrogant. Should we talk about radio, Anne? News this week that, well, there's two uh, radio station launches that I'd like to talk about. The first was announced at the Radio and Internet News Summit in London this week. Podcast Radio. Yes. Does what it says on the tin. Yes. Is that a tin anyone wants to buy? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we don't know much about this at the moment. I have seen um, Jerry Edwards is the person behind it. He has posted in, in kind of the podcast group that I'm in uh, a while ago when he was floating the idea. Um, so, yeah, the idea is he's going to take podcasts that already exist and play them on a radio station in London. The press release did make me giggle slightly because it said there's a potential audience of 12 million people. So everyone in London, stop what you're doing and yeah. <laughs> find the station. Because with podcasts, there's a potential audience of the whole world. The whole world, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that doesn't mean they're going to listen. Although obviously more people listen to radio than consume podcasts, although podcasters are on the up. Um, I think this is a passion project and that's great. If, if he's really keen about doing this and it could be good for some smaller podcasters because it gives you a another option to get your content out there. It also means that it opens you up for the potential for entering a different load of awards because some awards, like for radio, you have to have had the programme broadcast on the radio. So if you've got hmm. a podcast that's been put out on there, it opens up a few Which more. Which awards are they? Well, I'd, I don't want everyone to write in if I've got the thing go on, wrong. But, go on, go on. Well, I haven't read the... For example, in the past, the Arias used to have different... No, you can they've changed that now, now yeah. yeah. Well, okay, unless, unless your podcast being broadcast on podcast radio is eligible yeah. for, you know, breakfast yeah. show of the year. But well, maybe even like that. I was trying to find some positive. I don't think there is. On. No, I appreciate I admire the technique, but I don't. I, it's hard to see... Because even if you wanted a sort of serendipitous curated feed of podcasts to discover... There's the homepage on Spotify now, isn't there? There's podcast radio. But not radio everybody is 4. there. So you kind of look at the audience that exists and who listens to radio and how much overlap there is with people who listen to podcasts. There's still a whole load of people out there who haven't discovered podcasting. I suppose there is also the argument that it's all audio content. So at what point does a podcast played on the radio become a radio program? There's practical challenges around the timetabling and the clock system that radio stations have. So if you've suddenly got all these podcasts that are different lengths and different genres, how are you going to put them together? And also but, swearing and yeah, libel. Obviously, obviously and they're going to have to all those things that radio that. stations have to worry about. But then if you think about um, something like Upload Radio, they already have a system for dealing with that kind of thing where you submit it. I mean, I imagine you're going to submit this stuff in advance and it's going to be checked through. And, and um, for no money. That's, they're asking podcasters. If you're listening to this thinking, great, I'd love to have my podcast on the radio. The answer is for no money. I think at the moment that's that's the model. But there are, to be fair, there are some podcasters who are very excited by this because they probably don't have a huge audience. Mm. They're not already receiving money for their podcast anyway. This is a free piece of marketing and advertising for them. And 
with so much expansion of digital radio and options on DAB Plus and all of those kind of things, if someone wants to put on a load of nice content and other people are happy to have it, then good for them. I mean, Boyd, you are a fellow podcaster. Mm. A couple of those are independent, aren't they? Yeah. Um, if someone approached you, it's funny, isn't it? I feel like I would never upload my show to this service. I wouldn't demean myself to that level. <laughs> and yet, if someone approached me and yeah. said, we love your show and we'd like to put it out on the radio at four o'clock on a Sunday, I'd probably say yes. Yeah, it seems mostly harmless to me, to, to coin a phrase. I mean, I guess as long as... He's, are they going to make money out of it, particularly? Are they, is this a commercial proposition? Theoretically, they? through advertising, they could. I mean, I guess if they do start making money out of other people's free content, then that would be questionable, I think. But it feels to me like a kind of, as you said, like a celebration almost of the podcast world. So that, for me, that's why it seems fine to me. And I feel it's unlikely that they're going to go, oh, well, we have much to Boyd's Footballistically Arsenal podcast as opposed to every other football. In fact, there's about 20,000 Arsenal podcasts. Yeah, are. So and if maybe, they offered, you'd be flattered. And in six go. months' yeah. time, when it's been launched properly, we could all be sitting here going, oh, that's genius. And yeah. we completely you know, missed <laughs> the point. See also uh, BritBox. <laughs> Also, from an engineering point of view, Anne, which is your background, like, you know, the thing with podcasts is they're all at different compression Lengths. rates, different lengths, oh. they all sound different. Some of them are recorded in beautiful studios like this, some of them are recorded out in the street on phones. That's yeah. a bit of an inconsistent listen as well. Yeah, I know that in their testing that they've been saying, oh, some of the testing's been around things like the EQ and the compression and all that kind of stuff. I suppose over time, again, I don't think this is a large operation. I think this is people who really care and are trying to do something different and and that's that's a good thing. Over time, you're going to learn from experience and develop some standard operating procedures, aren't you? And almost become like any other organisation that says, if you want to give us your programme, it's got to be this length and it's got to be in this format. And, and the name? Yeah. It's I, kind of ungoogleable. Yeah, that's that was my immediate thought. The problem with podcast radio is it's very clear what it is, but it's also incredibly hard to find because <laughs> yeah. those words are really <laughs> common terms yeah. now. And yeah. It's a bit like calling something internet radio or something. Yeah, or yeah. just Google News. Google or something. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or the media podcast, dare I say. Um, <laughs> the other radio station that launched uh, this week, Boyd, is from your own stable, as in not the Boyd Hilton stable, no. but Bauer. Bauer, yes, my, the company that owns Heat and um, uh, uh, Empire and Pilot TV, who I, who I work for, um, is launching Magic at the Musicals. He's saying this with jazz hands. I am. Now, I mean, you know, Nothing I say is, is about to be any kind of critique of my own um, company's new radio station. And it, But it, what's interesting is they put our press release curtain up on a new radio station. And the, I did not know this fact. In the last five years, they say, theatre attendance has soared by 2.2 million to 34.5 million people annually, more than the total attendance for every live music concert or festival in a full year, and more than double the attendance for every Premier League match combined hmm. in a season. That is a good stat. I was impressed with that stat. But if you go and see Hamilton... You don't necessarily also like Greece and Godspell. But you're probably quite likely do in my experience. In my experience, people who do go to musicals really effing love musicals. I mean, I, it does. Je I mean, I get that sense from my colleagues and friends. So I think it's a pretty good idea. As niche radio station ideas go, I feel it's like a pretty good one. And they haven't done with what, with respect, Bauer have done on some of their other stations, which is take their presenters that they've made unemployed from other stations and they've shut down. I cannot comment on that. <laughs> and stuck them on their new genre-specific one. They have actually found, as far as I can they've see, got, presenters yeah. who care about musical right. theatre. That is a good idea. Yeah, so they've got Ruthie Henshaw, who is, I understand, a, a, an 
intellectual like, bona fide, bona fide musical theatre yeah. legend. And, yeah. I, and Johnny Bailey, Jonathan Bailey, I'm calling him Johnny because I met him a few times, <laughs> who is also a really talented actor and star of musicals, and he's a really good guy because I met him a few times. So that, so yeah, I mean that makes sense. They've got people actually who are who who have reason to present shows on this new station. Except here I am, Anne, in a reverse of the situation we were just discussing, thinking I like musical theatre. I'd quite like to hear some of those shows as podcasts, not on the radio station. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I have to say the very first person I thought of when I saw this station announced was you, because (laughs) you've spoken in the past. It's not the first musical station that has been launched, to be fair. You know, the other other stations that there's Encore and then there's... Matinee. Thank you. Yes. Um, This, it's great. For people who don't know where the Bower offices are. They are right in the middle of of the theatre land in London. So well, their radio offices are. Their radio offices are. Their yeah. uh, magazine offices are in Camden. Oh, That's in where Thomas, I am. Yeah. Afraid, yeah. It's still closer than a lot of people in the country are to their theatres. But in terms of people being it, because I think that it's not just the music, is it? They're planning to have people coming in for interviews yes. and you know yes. actors hanging around in the afternoon. Right? But you, so you don't, well, the problem, you can't have you, a musical. What are you about to say? Have, you, have I been approached to present you, the show on Magic at the Musicals despite being an avowed fan of musical theatre and having presented for Magic in the past no i haven't thank you for bringing it up okay but the problem is you can't have this as a podcast format ollie because if they're playing music from the musicals then as we all know international licensing is an absolute nightmare i I have a theory about that but Uh, i wouldn't be prepared to give away a trade secret on this show Mm -hmm. um tell us about uh the updates that adobe have launched this week uh a de-umming tool Oh, yes, this is painful. Um, Adobe, so Adobe, uh, lots of people use Adobe Audition for editing their podcasts or radio shows, that kind of thing. And they have uh, an event where they have these sneaks that they call, it's kind of beta stuff that they tell the world about. Some stuff they're working on that may or may not make it to real launch. So they had two kind of audio related things at their event recently. One was called Project Soundseek and the idea is that it finds the errs and the ums in your recording and you can press a magic button and it just de-ums it for you and then you have this beautiful recording. And did they do a demo that yeah, sounded Yeah, the demo went like this. Hello. Uh, I'm a bit nervous about <laughs> speaking today. Uh, I hope you don't mind. <laughs> and then they ran the demo with this beautifully isolated er uh, that was easy to find yeah. and then removed it. And then they made the poor man sound even more like a robot than he had to start with. So I wasn't so convinced by that one, although I think there's potential if you're doing audio recognition and then that's being linked to transcripts for using it for search later on. So there's always a nugget of a good idea in these things. Um but, you know, good on them for trying stuff out. The other one that they had that was audio-based was Project Awesome Audio. This one seems a bit more useful. It's a way of dealing with a recording that hasn't been done very well. And instead of spending hours and hours and hours in the settings, kind of finding the EPQ and um, compression and all that stuff, they've got a magic button that makes it sound a bit better and takes away some of the background audio. So I can see for a lot of podcasters who are on their own trying to work things out, that might be a more useful thing than the DMing tool. I mean, the ears and the ums are what make us human, are they not? To err is to human. To yeah. human, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, know, I relate astom- to people who are... Yeah, I was astonished by this because um, there are just some... Did one. It was there, good one. There are some presenters I could name. In fact, I could name if I remembered who I'm thinking of. But there's a couple <laughs> who have almost like famous for their ers and their ums and the way... Uh, yeah. Like Dara O'Brien, for example, right? If you yes. watch... Mock the week. He has a kind of quite interesting kind of uh, way of <laughs> talking. He says that eh, a lot, yeah, eh, a lot. Sandy talks fake as well. Just, yeah, that's just, the punchline. Right, uh, uh, right. talks a million miles an hour Thank and goes. Yeah. Yeah. So you just yeah. kind of get used to those those yeah. verbal ticks, those those noises they make, and that's what makes them who they are in a, in a way. So this strikes me as being quite an odd uh, dehumanizing. Well, when thing. you edit, you do DM, but I would always leave 
enough in sure. to make it seem natural. Right. But this is quite, this is a sledgehammer to crack a nut at the mm. moment. But to be fair to them, it is a kind of a, a beta product. So okay. I suppose they're seeing what people go for before they develop it to perfection. Well, I'm sure there will be no ers or ums as you prepare your answers for our earth-shattering media quiz. <laughs> I love the awkward pauses. Today, in honour of the FT appointing its first ever female editor, I'm going to quiz you on the first women in Fleet Street. So I'm going to give you the name of a female editor and the paper that she helmed. All you have to do is give me the date she was appointed. We're looking for Ooh. the year. Oh, not the day. Cool. Not the day, the year. Oh, the day. No. Imagine if had the day. get within five or something. Uh, yeah, well, the, the closest will get the point. Uh, buzzing with your name, we know the answer. So Anne, you will say... Anne. And Boyd, you will say... Boyd. Let's go. In what year did Della Riviere Manley succeed Jonathan Swift as editor of The Examiner? Anne. Anne. 1711. Boy. I have been... Uh, 1822. Yeah, you, what were you about to say, Anne? You've been I've re-spotting been, I've been up. trying to do spot up, yeah. <laughs> oh, are you right? She is exactly Oh, right. that is sick. It was 1711. Uh, oh, English... I have not done my revision, so... <laughs> no, I'm stuffed after this. Oh. Uh, the English author, playwright and satirist was a Tory pamphleteer and sometimes referred to with Afra Ben and Eliza Haywood as one of the fair triumvirate of wit. Uh, which I don't think anyone is going to be applying There's to something our something to aspire to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, right, here is uh, lady number two, lady editor number two. Which year did Rachel Beer become the editor of The Observer and The Sunday Times? Um, Take a guess if you don't know. Anne, yes. It was 1890-something. Uh, Boyd. I mean, clearly, you, you're going to be right, aren't you? Uh, I, I'm, all right, I'll say 1910. <laughs> <laughs> well... I don't know which year of 90-something is closer, but uh, it was 1891, so I suppose you get the point, yeah. Anne, yes. What did you say, It, does, Anne, did you... it stuck with you me. You said 1890-something. 1890-something, because I don't know about you, I was surprised at how early it was. for, And then there was a very long... There seemed to be a I think what Anne is doing here, Boyd, yeah. yeah. it's her first time on the show. I mean, she has, she's, she's basically letting on that the producer sends the answers to yeah. the quiz in advance. I, I, that, do you know what? And, and yeah. yet most they people are so sloppy like you, they like, haven't even bothered to look at the link. That's yeah. how the quiz works. No, I did look at the link. But I didn't if you look that, at the links, you can win. Think, I didn't think the specific <laughs> dates would be, the, would be no. what would be asked, uh, frankly. The Indian-born Rachel Beer was editor-in-chief of both papers from 1891 to 1904 and was aunt to the war poet Siegfried Sassoon. Uh, and the question that isn't a tiebreak because Anne has won is this. In which year did Mary Howarth launch the Daily Mirror as editor? I'm going to let Boyd guess, I think, since you have done your homework. Boyd, she launched the Daily Mirror? Yep. As editor? Yep. Oh, God. Okay. I'm saying um, 1912. Uh, not bad. Okay. And do you care to get closer? Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know. Uh, 1910. It was 1903, so you oh, are closer. Okay. You have comprehensively okay. won. Comprehensively won. <laughs> uh, the Manchester-born Mary Howarth edited the women's column in the Daily Mail in the late 1890s and was then appointed as first editor of The Mirror, uh, which was then part of the same group. Two facts that I did not Gosh. know. Yeah, there we are. I thought at least there'd be a question about Eve Pollard, you know, Claudia Winkleman's mum. Yeah, no, as really, far as we're really concerned, back. female journalism I, I, stopped in 1903. <laughs> yeah, <clearly. laughs> I saw her speaking at an event once and she had the best advice ever for a female yeah. journalist. Go on. And she was like, right, 
what you have to do is you must be seen to keep up with the drinking, but you cannot keep up with the drinking. So every woman needs a large, cheap handbag into which she can place her pints, wow. take them to the loo and pour them down the sink. That's amazing. I met Eve Pollard once and she was everything I wanted. Yeah, she's a legend. That's exactly the kind of thing yeah. she's yeah. Uh, That is it for today. My thanks to uh, quiz winner Anne Charles and Boyd Hilton. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep doing it, do consider taking out a voluntary subscription, won't you? Head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and choose an amount to keep us going all year round. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale-Sherry. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.